Dotnet Rocks episode 752 with guests James Kovacs, Andrew Nurse, Bill Simser, and James Chambers. Recorded live Thursday, March 15th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thousands and thousands of people, Richard. Thousands. Thousands. Thousands of dozens. Thousands of dozens. They sound like thousands. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a a Calvary of Calgarians. Wow. Say that three times fast. I don't know. Yeah, okay. Anyway, we are here in Calgary, Alberta at uh, DevCon West. Prairie DevCon. Prairie DevCon. Prairie DevCon. We're somewhere. We're somewhere. And this panel is all about the future of the web. So what is it? I don't know. <laughs> is there a future? Is it a fad? No, I think we're all pretty much Are we done? No. So anyway, that's what we're here to talk about. And before we can talk, our panelists need to introduce themselves, starting with James to my left. Uh, my name is James Kovacs. I'm a technical evangelist with JetBrains. Uh, I'm Andrew Nurse, and I'm not actually sure how I got here. I followed a trail of candy, and I was hungry. And, <laughs> but uh, You have I, been deceived, sir. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I work for Microsoft on the ASP.NET team. Great. My name's uh, Bill Simser. I'm uh, from Calgary, uh, SharePoint MVP, and professional bacon eater. And uh, I'm James Chambers at LogiSense Corp, um, uh, uh, Microsoft MVP on the ASP.NET stack. So we do these shows every once in a while just to sort of take a temperature of current trends and things that we'd rather forget about that we have been using just to sort of see, you know, give people a picture of the, of the state of the web. I don't know, does anybody have any opening thoughts about this? About any particular, I don't even know if it's technologies, maybe methodologies and practices that are just now sort of coming into sharp focus in the wider world of web. I guess I'll start, you know, let's start with maybe a question around what we think the web is, right? Is it just a series of tubes or, <laughs> or is it, or is it just a bunch of sites connected together or what is, what is, you know, what's the web right now, right? Is, because the interesting thing I see a trend now is that a lot of websites are, they're called websites, but, but realistically the Twitter website is the Twitter app, right? Yeah. So it's more like websites are applications, not websites anymore. They just happen to live on the web and they've got other clients on your phone and your, and your desktop and whatnot. So, so what's the web right now? So the web sort of seems to be moving from the place where you uh, access your content to the vehicle by which you access your and interact with applications. Yeah, yeah. And then the other trend is, you know, the other idea of um, previously you would have a product and then you would set up a website to support that product. Now it's recently, or not recently, but the last few years it's been something quite opposite where all that all, all exists is the web um, and then the product becomes 
you know, some monetization of that in, on a different platform. Or the product exists as a service behind the website, and the website is just a client for that product, much like any other device that we've got. So be it mobile or, or maybe your fridge or whatever, you've got um, a client that's accessing that service or product. I think you, I mean, the web started out as sort of a way of communicating information and, you know, talking about your products if you are, if you were selling products. But now it really is the case that the web is the product. Like, you're, you're creating services that are purely to exist on the web. Do we stop calling people web developers or just developers now? I think so. Uh, that's a good point. In order to develop for the web today, you need to be more than a specialist in HTML and JavaScript. Mm -hmm. You need to know a wide variety of back-end technologies. You need to know about the fundamental infrastructure and potential communication mechanisms. Uh, you need to know server technologies. It's much broader reaching. We're, well, it, we are developers. Turning that point around, James, uh, show me a developer that's building an app that doesn't touch the internet in some way. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, the litmus test used to be data, right? How many apps, you know, somebody said 99% of all apps or 95% of all apps use data or in a database. Mm -hmm. What are the other 5%? <laughs> you know, and now it's that, sort would, of, that would be like calculator, yeah, <laughs> notepad, yeah, exactly. Well, that's very much the case. Is that there are very few applications that don't have some connection to a network, yeah, and or either require it or have the their experience augmented in some way because of it. At least uh, so we're updates. seeing much more connected applications and much more collaborative app applications as well. Like one of the things we're seeing is even in uh, things like development IDEs, there's links into the community, ways of getting code snippets and examples down. Uh, NuGet's an example where mm -hmm. it used to be that you'd get your DVDs and you'd plop them into your drive and you'd install the software. But now you can dynamically install new pieces of functionality into your projects directly over the internet. Mm. Well, and I mean, my new machine hasn't got a drive, right? It's got an SSD, and, and the only way to install software is over the internet, pretty much. There isn't anything else. I guess I could use USB keys, but, you know, I'd rather gnaw my own leg off. Mm. Well, it, w it was interesting because it wasn't that many years ago where going without a five and a quarter or three and a half inch drive on a new computer was seen as her heresy. Right. And now yeah. you see lots of computers coming out that don't even have a CD-ROM. Yeah, that's right. On that idea of being able to access things, especially through the IDE, I think uh, one of the things that's happening, and this happens continuously through um, uh, th just through the whole software development kind of uh, realm, but the bar keeps getting lowered. So, I mean, if, if you go back a couple of years, it was it was still hard to figure out how to write, um, for example, a Twitter client or something that integrated with Facebook. And now with a single line, like a single command out of your package manager console in Visual Studio, you've got like authentication and, and authorization based on a role that somebody's got on a different site. You didn't have to do any of that back-end stuff, and it's just there for you in your software. That's another interesting trend that we're seeing is integration between sites. Sites used to be very much silos. We're now seeing sites as applications, like Facebook and Twitter, where you've got this entire ecosystem built up around them, and other sites are accessing the data and providing additional experiences based on your membership to a completely separate third-party sites. Yeah, and it's it's... it's 
you know, what I see in the web is more software as a service type models where people are actually building their whole system as, as Lego and just saying, you know, here's our services, consume them, build whatever you want, uh, clients to promote our services or clients to integrate to our services or other, other services to integrate with our services. Yeah, I think it's getting to a point where, like, the first thing I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about a web application I want to write is, what is the API going to be? Like, what are the services going to be that you're yeah. going to build in front of it? It may even be that we're getting to a point where, you know, you, server sending down HTML is not as important. The server sending data and the, uh, the client has, is rendering it himself. So that, like, the data is the first class citizen there. Well, I noticed that, not the ASP.NET guy speaking, that, uh, in Studio 11, you know, MVC projects and web form projects went away. It's just ASP.NET projects now. So, you know, in some ways you've pushed back the whole concept of an API. Well, yeah, and then Web API is now brought into the entire ASP.NET ecosystem, and mm -hmm. an MVC project, you know, pretty much comes with Web API now, and it's mm -hmm. sort of assumed that if you're building a site, you're probably going to want an API for it. Okay. Are, are we on the cusp of a content revolution, or is it just me? And what I mean by that is, a rethinking and uh, a more, more sophisticated type of content that we will now be experiencing from different devices rather than just a, a browser. You're meaning, of course, after we get through the content glut? Yeah, well, there's always been a content glut, uh, and there's been no shortage of bad content. Um, and But you and I both know that some experiences far are greater than others, and it seems to me that you know, let's just take newspapers, for example, and magazines. I mean, magazines started dying uh, in, you know, 1997, really. And then they've, they've been on a steady decline, especially technical magazines or, or any kind of periodical where time they're time-sensitive. Um, now, sort of getting into, you know, Kindle Fires and, and iPads and tablets and stuff, the, the, the goal isn't to have a website, necessarily. It's to have an app. And that app has to give you access to that content in a really special way. Otherwise, uh, so what about magazines, newspapers? You know, everybody says paper is dead. Well, that's a very... Do you think we're really on the cusp of this new... Uh, I think we are. Like, it was just announced uh, either yesterday or today that Encyclopedia Britannica is no longer going to be printed. Awesome. Digital only. Yeah. Which is just mind-boggling. They've been printing Encyclopedia Britannica for, I think, over a hundred years now, and yeah. yeah, it's. Does anybody use it anymore? Isn't it just Wikipedia? It's now? Wikipedia now. Yeah. yeah. What's an encyclopedia? Yeah. What is that? <laughs> what are you talking about? Richard, you young kid talking. I was talking but, to Richard just the other day, uh, yesterday, um, about an interesting little problem that happened with a guy who posted some false information. Oh, we were talking about the information diet, with this That's whole right. thing of, you know, how much junk content there is out there. And so uh, I'd, I'd have to go look up the site again, but uh, this guy created a website and specifically said on it, these facts are not true, and then listed them. And one of them, I think, was something like, Timothy Leary invented a new color. That's right. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and He might have seen a new color, well, but yeah, he didn't. Probably it. did. And then, but the, the crazy part was the nature of search engines 
And the nature of the sort of lack of checking of data on the internet meant that that clearly stated false statement ended up in Timothy Leary's Wikipedia entry, which then got picked up by some newspapers that were, you know, using Wikipedia as reference when they were talking about a Timothy Leary in an article. And now this guy's spending a lot of his time just going around finding all the places where his false data has been propagated saying, this data is false. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it just shows we're in an era of real-time content. Like, yeah. content is out now, and if it's not out now, it's too late. And it can, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but it's, it, you gotta be careful with it because you get these things that just sort of propagate without anyone well, ever it, checking them. I wanna go the other way now because I do think information is going through the same revolution that food went through. That we're ready for a slow information movement just like we got a slow food movement. It's time to actually consider more. Speed of creation isn't a feature. Yeah. Quality of creation is a feature. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's what you see in, in you know this decline of newspapers and magazines is that you know no longer can a newspaper wait to publish an article you know eight hours from now, right? Because it breaks on Twitter or it breaks on Facebook and it's out there and right or wrong, yeah. um, the story's already there and, and reading in the newspaper the next day is going to be... Uh, yeah. Only, or, but or I would argue, unless it provides real value, because breaking news is of questionable value, right? Yeah, and that's that's the thing too. Like we've 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 gotten really good at aggregating new content quickly, but there's not a lot of filters on it, right? right. So maybe maybe that's where that that evolution takes place. Maybe where that next that that next breakthrough happens is when you you've got an establishment of some way, you know, and then then it comes down to even though like is, when is this going to be politicized? Well, this, if this, I trust the content filter, then you know who's who's running the filter? Well, newspapers right? have long been crying, you know, quality of information matters, and everybody's like, yeah, but I'm not going to pay, you know. So uh, the, maybe it's time that uh, do you think the mob will be swayed to to accept to payment web? for quality information? I'm not so sure. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think they'd rather be misinformed quicker. <laughs> I, I think but we've seen that a paid web, it, people aren't picking up on it very but well. I, and I do think this is what this whole information diet is about, is right. recognizing that behavior is junk food. Right. Right. Is that you, you know, the grocery store has junk food and good food in it. It is up to you to pick the good food. And, and if you keep picking the junk food, they'll make more junk food. And they certainly eat the junk food today yeah. in 2012. I think, the, you know, you started this car with this, are we on the cusp of something? I think yeah. this is the cusp. The cusp is, is this idea that actually I want quality content. Yeah. I don't need more content. I need better content. And we're going to have to start pushing back on the junk data. No, don't consume that. But but it's hard to tell what is junk data. So I'll give you an example. Stack Overflow, fantastic website, right? Everybody's on there. It's completely user-driven. Somebody asks a question, posts posts an answer, gets voted up. But who determines what what what's right and what's wrong, right? It's it's sort of like mob rules, right? Yeah, it's their members. You know, it's the members. But how do you trust that, right? Unless you unless you know that person or unless you can verify that fact, there's no you know, it's sort of like a difference between uh responsible journalism and blogs. Fortunately on Stack Overflow, the information tends to be question is how do I do this? And the answer is this code. So that's easily testable. To, to a certain extent, but I've seen a lot of examples. Like, you know, that sorry. worked great. I've seen a lot of examples on Stack Overflow where there's lots of answers and lots of junk 
that you need to filter out. Yeah. And so you waste your time going through the junk and trying to figure out what's right. And, right. and that's, you know, it's, it's like the fire hose, right? From Twitter is what do you trust? What's, what's right? What's wrong? And how do you know what's going on? And, and Carl, as you're alluding to, that solves the problem of very specific, uh, because I mean, the, the thing that'll happen on Stack Overflow is if you ask something that can be considered an opinion, yeah. then people are just going to like close because it's not a, right. a, a good question. But if, if you, that answers this problem then is, okay, I have a very specific thing that I need a solution to. Mm -hmm. And so the community helps filter anything that doesn't fit that paradigm out. So you've got a good exam, a good answer now for the content that is in a very specific context, yeah. right? And the filter happens naturally through the community. But what about the things that are more abstract? How do we get to a point where we can filter Here's, that? This is one reason I buy all my computer stuff from Newegg, because of the ratings and the comments. And when I'm looking for a power supply, I sort by ratings. And then I look at them and I see, oh, there's one guy that had a problem. Let's see what his problem was. And it's usually, uh, it was dead on arrival. Okay, but a thousand other people had an awesome experience. I'm getting that one. You know? Oh yeah, it's the whole wisdom of the crowds thing. I mean, like I, when I'm looking for a restaurant, a place to eat, I look at Yelp. I don't really look at a lot of, yeah. you know, professional quote unquote reviews. I mean, I have to, I take it with a grain of salt because the wisdom of the crowds can also be sometimes the stupidity of the crowds. Yeah, well, but <laughs> that's that's it too. It's different with a, I don't know. It's different for. Um, what am I trying to say here? I, I think there's an opportunity for companies to chime in, like on Amazon ratings, for example. Somebody will put out an album on Amazon and get all his buddies to comment on it. Who would do that? I don't know. I don't know anybody would do that. <laughs> I don't know. I can't imagine anyone doing you know, that. But then you look at it like, oh, look at all these great reviews, and you know, but they're all friends or whatever, and or or people that work inside the company. But um, so that I guess. More but, is better. But it also has that negative effect, right? There was the, um, the Amazon review for whatever product it was that somebody had made jokes of. And, you know, that got onto the Twitter feed and onto the social media and, and it exploded and it distilled the, the, the fact that they actually had good quality. Uh, it, I think it was a taser product. Uh, and, it, and it was like, it was a fine quality product, but the social, you know, juggernaut behind it saying, you know, here's a joke on, on, on it, um, how you can taser people at airports and stuff, uh, overshadowed the product, right? And, and now the company is doing absolutely nothing but, but, uh, damage control. That sucks. So. For them. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, my, my favorite too. Amazon story is the three wolves sweater. You ever heard no, this no, one? The three wolves sweater meme where some guy wrote the most outrageous description of how this sweater had changed his life. <laughs> And it perpetrated literally thousand more, you know, five star reviews for this sweater about how much it will change your life. But, like, but you know, it also perpetrated a lot of sales, right? Because because the company. It's came a back three and wolf sweater. <laughs> <laughs> there should not be more than one of these. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, makers of Kendo UI. Are you a web or mobile developer who wants to build amazing sites and apps? Looking for the best tool out there that can really improve your development work? We've got the answer for you. Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. In the complete integrated package, you'll find a jQuery-based tool set that includes rich UI widgets, a powerful data source, dynamic data visualizations, and blazing fast micro-templates, all backed by industry-leading professional support. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash dot net, that's D-O-T-N-E-T, to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 60-day trial with support. Also, tablet show number 19 
was an interview with Todd Anglin on the Kendo UI. Richard and I talked to him at length about this great tool set. That's at thetabletshow.com, and look for show number 19 in the archives. And when you talk to the Telerik guys, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, anyway, I, I tend to be really focused and interested on websites that incorporate market forces and incentives. Hey, I'm a huge Freakonomics fan. Anybody else a Freakonomics fan? God, I love those guys. <laughs> so, um, but I, I, I started, I stumbled across this website called Music X-Ray, which is for artists on one side and for people and companies who have opportunities for those artists on the other side. And so if you're someone who has an opportunity, let's say you're working at a record company and you need a song that's very specific for a movie or whatever it is, you put out an opportunity and you had, have a price for submission and you use that price lower and raise that price to speed up or slow down the rate of submissions that you get from the artist. The artist has to pay four bucks to the website for every opportunity they apply to, so that's one level of filtering. If they're not serious, they won't pay. And then on top of that, the, the opportunity provider can add this other fee that they use, like I said, as a speed bump. And so what ends up happening is, oh, and the other thing is the opportunity person is guaranteed to listen to the song that you're submitting and provide you feedback. And if they don't, they're off the system. And I know because I saw it happen. So it's been, it's been really cool. I've actually, I've used it personally to get some radio play, but also to get feedback that I would normally not get. When somebody doesn't like it, they tell you why. Yeah, and I've seen that too, um, and use that too for uh, artwork where you submit either your own artwork for something for a job, or you submit a job saying, hey, I've got a company, I'm looking for a logo, you know, here's the specifications, here's what I'm willing to pay. You get all these submissions. Um, it's not something that you could do if you were working with um, an individual company or a series of media companies. Mm. And so you get to pick and choose what you want. There's monetization involved. But at the end of the day, the process works out a lot quicker than you would if you were dealing with uh, ad agencies or whatever. So that kind of yeah. you know, commercialization is, is an interesting twist on the web where it's kind of crowdsourcing you know, content and filtering up the, or bubbling up the best to, the best you can find and getting it for a reasonable price. We're already moving in this conversation in the opposite direction of what you said before, where we, you said, you know, we don't, you don't think that people are willing to pay for filtered content. And yet, I mean, you're paying, you're paying for the service. And, and yeah. the, the example of the artwork one, like, I mean, I've seen the sites and there are the ones where you can go and post it out in the general public and say, Hey, who wants to build me a logo? And you're going to get like a globe with a swirl and an aerial font. And there's going to be 500 people pitching a $5 logo for you. Or you can go the route that Bill's talking about and you're going to pay $75 to post that project up and before the artist will start work you're going to have to um, uh, what do you call it when you have to throw the money at a third party uh, on the side? Escrow. 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 You have to escrow the funds before the artist starts work and it's mm. going to be four or five hundred bucks but you're going to get a much better product than you yeah. would in that non-serious free kind of area. Well, yeah, it's like the web it's like anting, anting up in the web right for, mm. you know, if you're really serious about getting in this game then okay pay that small price and get right. quality content. I think paying for that kind of thing is really paying for a product or a service rather than paying for information or news. Mm. Right, you true, know, true. if I'm just, if I'm, I think people are less willing to pay for a list of headlines is what I'm getting at. Well, and I think that's the problem that newspapers are having is that they don't realize that the world's changing, that this information is 
freely available, maybe not as polished, but people aren't willing to pay for polish. But for really unique content, they're still willing to pay. There's a number of services that I've subscribed to, uh, like Gary Bernhardt's Destroy All Software or uh, Ryan Bates' Railscasts, both excellent resources in the Ruby and Vim and Unix communities that tell you how to utilize these products. And it's cheap. It's directly to them. Uh, there's more commercial services like Pluralsight and TechPub, which people are paying for because it essentially is filtered content Yeah, that is much higher quality and people are getting paid to produce it. So we are seeing a change in monetization strategies. Yeah, you can't really underestimate the power of the crowd. I mean, and especially when there's incentives on both sides. Those are the kinds of things that I'm really interested in. Well, look, look at the, uh, the, the, the crowd, um, crowdsourcing uh, of the comedian, I can't remember his name, uh, released his video. So put together a comedian, released a video of his show, put it up, and rather than getting the commercial publication and, and uh, production of the show and charging $40 for a DVD, put it up on his website and said, here, five bucks. And he made... Louis C.K.? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Made uh, something like a million dollars or a million, a million sales in... You know, four days. Incredible, yeah. right? Yep. And, and it just goes to show that, you know, good quality content at a reasonable price, right? And so you see these things like tech pop and whatever, whatever, where there's, there's great quality content for next to nothing, um, rather than the free content, which, you know, yeah. you could probably spend days trying to filter out, but. And it's five bucks, you know, it's like, come on, give me five bucks to watch this great video. It's like, he has voracious fans, so. That uh, was a no-brainer. Well, and it's also interesting from a content producer standpoint to look at what monetization really requires. Like if I, I gave the examples of Railscasts and Destroy All Software. They're nine bucks a month. Given that they're individual people producing these contents, you don't need that many subscribers to make it worth your while. You figure you get a thousand subscribers. That's nine thousand bucks a month, which is a pretty decent wage, and your expenses are fairly low as well. But now turn it around to the consumer perspective of you guys and us, where it's like, okay, how many can I, can, how many things can I subscribe to mm. on a monthly basis before I, I hit that, you know, breaking point, right? Like, it'd be great to subscribe to every great tech pop podcast and every great tech subscription, but that's going to run me a few hundred bucks a month, right? Is it worth it to my business or... Or well, that's why you have to pick and choose, and the slice of things that each developer chooses is going to be different, or each person, it's not even a developer, what you choose. It's the same thing with the production of shows, that you're seeing a lot of shows coming out, and you can buy entire seasons and watch them as they come out. The way that a cable, I think, is dying. We've got Netflix that are showing entire seasons. Uh, we've got iTunes, which you can buy shows that are in progress. There's lots of other services like this. Sporting events are saving them. That's the only reason. Yeah, sporting events. Are. And I think it's just a matter of time before someone manages to echo some contracts with the teams that allows them to stream these sporting events. you got to talk to Stanfield about that. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt, I'm waiting for a guy like J.J. Abrams to just say, you know what, I'm going to skip all of this and just have a web subscription for the ne my next series. And off you go. Well, I was talking to an attendee last night at the party, and uh, he's gotten really into watching StarCraft. And you can buy a subscription to HD broadcasts of StarCraft out of Korea for 60 bucks a year. Now, that's a crazy thing. I'm going to pay money to watch games. other people play video games. Yes. <laughs> really? That's where we're at? It, it's become a sport. It's when highly I, competitive. 
they have been talking about that for some time. Like I remember when the uh, when the Madden game came out on Dreamcast, there were already people talking about, oh, well, you're going to see pro players, you know, getting getting their football on on a Dreamcast halfway around the world, and it's. Um, well, it was crazy. The guy was saying like, there's some really well known commentators in the StarCraft arena, and they actually commentate the game, and oh, they're building for a Zerg rush, and they get really good commentary. But oh, they haven't gotten this in this build order in by this point. They're not going to be able to do X by later on. Like, it's just crazy stuff, but it's actual sports-style commentary on video games, and people are paying subscri- annual subscriptions to watch HD streams. Yeah, I mean, we laugh at it, but like, there's obviously a community for it, and without the web, they wouldn't have anywhere to put this stuff up. But this, you know. uh, yeah, you're definitely getting into the definition of a long tail <laughs> yeah. at this point. So, what does all this content mean for developers? And uh, form factors changing, all of that stuff. Richard and I were just talking about uh, we're not very far away from your glasses being your screen, you know, where, where things are literally looking like they're 10 feet in front of you on your glasses. And we, we think we're just a few years away from this. What does that mean for developers? Does that mean that we constantly have to be following the the APIs and the uh, do we have to know more about devices? I, I guess I have no idea what it's going to look like, but well, I think you raise a valid point that really at the end of the day, content is king. If you've got good content, then you're going to have eyeballs. What's interesting for us as developers how we provide that content. It changes. There's so many different devices and form factors. Uh, we're having this entire tablet revolution. We can watch TV on our smartphones. We've got laptops. We've got uh, computers coming into the living room. It's so really changing change? the face. So what doesn't change? The good content. We still need that. Those skills content for developers. Producers. What skills do we are we going to be able to carry throughout? I, th- I think that we need to start um, thinking more at the meta level, right? Because I think where users are starting to move towards is where they're wanting to see this aggregate content. We've got the combination of good content, but we've also now uh, got this this idea that it has to be content from multiple sources in the same spot. So this has been emerging over the last few years, yeah. and the really the really good apps and the ones that are doing um, the multiple uh, pieces at the same time, consuming multiple. APIs, those are the ones that are, seem to be adopted the most. So when we're thinking about moving the content closer and closer to the user as they move around, then I think we need to be aware of that. I don't know that I necessarily know what that means. I think what I'm getting at is decoupled architecture, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, the, the kinds of practices and patterns that we've been talking about that work everywhere. Those are the kinds of things that aren't going to change, no matter what our front end looks like. Yeah, and I think we're getting to a point where, for the web uh, scenario, the server shipping down a UI is not really feasible anymore because there's so many different clients out there. So the server should just be responsible for pushing out some data, and then, you know, you're going to be using you know JavaScript and HTML to build UIs in front of that. Well, well, I think that being a web developer is an exciting place to be. Uh, we haven't talked about HTML5 and CSS3 and all those other exciting places. But there's just so many things that used to be the domain of fat client applications, desktop-style applications. We do still have a demand for those, but there's so much more we can do with modern web technologies as the browsers gradually move forwards and adopt common idioms across them for doing, yes, like CSS3 transforms. Uh, I was showing some of the guys a parallax demo where it was all done in CSS3 and the website actually rotated and moved as you scrolled, which was just mind-blowing. If you go to ACO.net, A-C-K-O.net, 
in a WebKit browser, either Safari or Chrome, you actually see a Parallax demo, which is quite well, now cool. Now you're hitting on the real issue here, which is that all those cool features are browser-specific. <laughs> that is the problem, is that it's not broadly supported. Uh, it has become better. I was doing a lot of web development back in the, well, from the early days, but mm -hmm. professional web development in uh, IE3, IE4 timeframe, and that was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Because the way that uh, Netscape 3 and 4 handled things, basically, if you got a tag wrong, the page was blank in one of the two browsers. Yeah, mm -hmm. but I, right. but I, I I still think it's it's a nightmare. Like even HTML5 being right right once for all browsers, and then oh by the way, if you want to do this, you know here's your extensions. But going back to Richard's point is, I don't know if 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 web developers the right term anymore because you know am I a web developer if I build HTML5 on Windows 8? Right? Am I a, am I a web developer? Where, where or? it's actually compiled and deployed as an install? Exactly. I'm building, I'm building Windows runtime apps on the desktop, maybe not making use of any internet services, but I'm using HTML5 and CSS3 for mm -hmm. it. Right? Am I a web developer or an app developer or? Well, this, this whole reality of just JavaScript jumping out of the browser is kind of interesting. Like it's, that's, that's yeah. messing with my head too. Or on the server. <laughs> yeah, with the whole Node.js. Node.js, yeah. yeah. Server-side JavaScript. Yeah, it's an it's a interesting wow. place to be. The other thing that I think that. we need to remember as developers is that the end consumers really don't care. They don't yeah. care if it's HTML5. They don't care if it's an iPhone app. They don't care if it's .NET. They want something that works that gives them a good experience. So as developers, we need to provide that and be broadly familiar. It's the rise of the polyglot programmer. We need to be broadly familiar with technology so we can choose the right technology for the solution at hand. Hasn't the iPhone revolution clearly demonstrated that native apps work? That that's uh, absolutely. What... Uh, like I was amazed at how willingly people on the iPhone will just, oh, that's a buck, sure, I'll buy that. Well, so it's, I'll, it's and, a buck. But, exactly. <laughs> but it wouldn't, that market wouldn't exist if the phone itself wasn't so tightly controlled. And not all devices are like that. You know what I'm saying? None of the Android phones are like the devices are but, like but that. But the weird thing is, look at the Windows Phone 7, right? Uh, you put an app up there for a buck, and you get people humming and hawing about it, right? You put the same app up on, uh, on the iPhone, and everybody just goes, yeah, whatever. All right, so this, I've seen the opposite experience. Like, the stats don't pan that out. And Oatmeal wrote a great comic about, you know, people debating over 99 cents while they're buying their $5 lattes. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that some of this, the part of the success of the Apple products and iPhone is just the sheer number of people that have them? And I don't mean from a monetary standpoint, but I mean from the whole aspect of people wanting to belong to something that's bigger than themselves and something that happens simultaneously everywhere. I mean, this is, a, this is an essential component of spirituality, if you think about it that the, the image of a movie star on stage is godlike because it exists in multiple places at the same time. I mean, if you go back through mythology, that is the, the number one characteristic of a god. So there is something to be said for the, the broad worldwide experience. It's why people watch the Olympics all at the same time, because they know they're in the moment with millions of other people. So I don't know if that, if that has something to do with why people will buy an iPhone app for 99 cents, but hem and haw at a Windows phone app. It definitely is a, is a web, you know, you look at Twitter, there's, it's 99.99% junk, right? Everybody telling about where they've been and when they're going to the washroom and what they bought and all that stuff. 
Um, but it, it's exactly that. It's like you want to be in the moment, right? So you start following in influential people and, and jumping in on conversations and all that stuff. But, but for the most part, yeah, people, people just, Gravitate to to these masses and and I still think that's well, a kind of goes, that's a kind of junk food as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. But we do have this emergence of this um, almost like a, like another coming of a commercialized religion or something. Because if I find a cool app and it's only a buck or whatever, but I buy into it uh, and there's some social aspect to it, then I want my friends to have that app yeah. too because the app is cooler when my friends are using yeah. it as well. Yeah. So now now you've got yeah, it's only a buck and you've got like these happy little merry market walking around pumping, pimping your app, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a Well, the other thing you have to be careful of is it's, it's not that everybody's running an iPhone and people want to run Apple hardware necessarily. My wife is technical in that she's got a blog and she can get, make her way around a computer, but she doesn't love technology. But she loves her iPhone for the reason that all of her friends have iPhones and iPods, and when someone says, check out this cool app, she can do it. She's not going, is it compatible? Do it, do, can I find a compatible version or an equivalent version on my phone? It's, it is the end content that matters to her. Can I get access to the things that everybody else is getting access to? So, so, so the hardware, it's the apps, right? It's which, yeah, it's completely the apps, which is absolutely like the critical factor for Windows Phone Seven, Android, and, and iPhone is not the hardware; it's the apps. And grant you, Apple hardware is pretty cool, but as developers, if we start looking at building these, you know, um, device agnostic software using HTML5 and web kind of technologies that we could deploy across multiple platforms, then it becomes, you know, check out this cool app on whatever device you have. Mm -hmm. Right. If it'll actually work that way, and I'm not convinced if, that it will. If it that's the that challenge. I, I also want to attack the apps from the other direction, which is I go into the Apple uh, App Store and there's 600,000 apps in there, and that's its own disaster. It's a well, fairly big one. You know, going back to the developer standpoint on that, that's what's happening with repositories like, like with Gems and with NuGet is that, you know, at first there was some really enthusiastic people with cool open source projects and, you know, the first several thousand packages that were out there were, you know, a lot of it was really good stuff. And now you're seeing this uh, prol proliferation of, of anything that's going up there and it's, it's, tr it's trying to sort through that nonsense is becoming a problem as well or having you know even like a, a manager or someone senior in your in your project let you use those those packages because they don't know where it's coming from well it raises the problem of curation and how do you create an experience that doesn't have all this uh, junk in it. But and I that's mean, really hard. But I mean, like, you look at, that's the same problem we have with websites on the web. There are so many websites. And so, you know, you look at something like Google, they're, what they're doing is they're not trying to curate, they're trying to find relevance. So I think what you get is these large marketplaces like NuGet and like Gems is, it, it's about, it becomes about discovery then. They're also trying to sell positions in their list, aren't they? Sure, sure. But, yeah. uh, but like, it becomes about how you, it, it, I think it's less a problem of how much there is, because the more there is, I think the better, as long as you have good discovery and good relevant searching. Hmm. Well, and there's uh, meta services that are being provided. Uh, I've been doing a lot of Ruby work lately, and there's a website called Ruby Toolbox, and it aggregates gems and so you and categorizes them. So what you do is you say, okay, I need something that uh, that bundles HTML5 into my site, and it will list off all the gems that do that, and then you can evaluate, and people rate them, and it gives you an opportunity to get that meta information and sort of the the intelligence of the community. I just want to point out that when I said Google, I definitely meant Bing. <laughs> <laughs> 
They'll, they'll edit that out in post-production. They'll let you keep your batch there, Bob. <laughs> You'll be okay. So in, in talking about the, um, some of the, the stuff that you're talking about, Bill, about how, you know, like whether or not we get there with the, the HTML5 thing, um, if, if we can actually get a pure standard um, adopted and, you know, available on multiple devices and whatnot, that would be great. But I remember this conversation, you know, we were talking about this before, is, is um, weren't we talking about this in 97? Like, we're, we're don't, we don't seem to be any closer to that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're still we're still really hashing the same set of issues over and over again. Uh, and it, well, we keep asking more and more from the standard, and that's why HTML5 has been declared a living standard. It's whatever it's basically documenting whatever the browsers are implementing yeah, relatively well, consistently. Living in the them. sense that it's a mutating standard that there's a bunch of different forces pushing on it in multiple directions. But, but that's like an iPad. The next version is just going to be called HTML, HTML, right? <laughs> nice. But that's the problem is that it's it's a standard, right? The WC3 standards are standards, but but there's always the implementation by Microsoft, by and not necessarily you, but <laughs> we're blaming you, Andrew. But e but each of the vendors, right? Where you know it's it's not you know dictatorship saying that you will do this. It's you could do this, and how you interpret that standard is is up to your device or your platform. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.NET from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. So let me bring it back to, you know, we know that things change quickly, things have been changing, and they will continue to change. Let's talk about some of the things that developers should focus on that won't change. And what that, what that means. If we can give somebody watching this or listening to this presentation and, all right, now we know that, oh my God, there's so much stuff I have to learn. What are the things that I can concentrate on learning that are going to stay with me into the future? Um, JavaScript. <laughs> that was, uh, what is the most common virtual machine in the world? It's the JavaScript VM. Mm -hmm. It is everywhere. It's on the server side with Node.js. There's one in every browser. Probably every phone in this auditorium has JavaScript, a JavaScript VM installed on it. Somewhere. So understanding JavaScript, how to leverage it, how to use it as a fun truly functional language uh, will do wonders for your development experience. Embrace it and be able to continue forward with it. It's continuing to evolve, but that... Understanding that is key. Uh, understanding fundamental HTML and CSS. Uh, people get really upset about HTML changing. Well, there's a lot of HTML that's been pretty stable mm -hmm. since They've pretty the much early not 90s. taken anything out. Like, They're just adding new things in. Yeah, and their things are being deprecated. And where we're seeing a lot of flux is yeah, a lot of... Marquee needed to be deprecated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the, the blink tag, yeah, that yeah. had to go. But yeah, architecture. Uh, I'll pass it on to someone else. <laughs> well, I think ar architecturally, you're still seeing a lot of of similarity. You know, as we're learning to build better architected apps at a high level, 
the the specific implementation details are starting to change a lot, but we're still needing to build well-structured apps, testable apps, uh, easily modular apps. I mean, all these concepts are still valuable no matter what, whether you're writing it in JavaScript or whether you're writing it in C-sharp. It's still important to be able to the, test the, your JavaScript. The model view pattern approach is the one that seems to be standing the test of time for separating the back from the front. And if we if we go back to that that idea of lowering the, of lowering the bar for people, then the the evolution of tools that are now supporting those patterns are just they just keep getting better and better. Along with things like um, using async, like I mean, right now, like my my ten year old son, I can teach him two words: async and await. And he can write multi threaded applications. Yeah. <laughs> it's really awesome. There's, there's a couple other things he does need to know, mind you. <laughs> the odd, the odd I thing. Yeah. I don't know if I want to see that app. <laughs> Well, I think you're, the key point here is modular, both modular from an application standpoint and also we used to try to build these very large monolithic apps that would do everything, but much smaller apps that are then composable with other applications. Mm. Because we have different SLAs for the individual pieces of an application, uh, we version and update different pieces of the application at different times and keeping things in a much more modular self-contained structure and communications between those pieces is going to make for a more robust long-term architecture with a lot more flexibility because you don't know when you're building v1 how people are going to use it that was how twitter came crashing down around their ears they didn't people didn't use it the way the developers thought they would twitter they thought that follower count would equal number of followers Oh, sorry, follower count would equal the number of people you're following. It would be, it was a very symmetric follower ratio. Whereas this asymmetric piece that has come in with Twitter where you have, you're following a hundred people and a million people follow you. Not expected. Yeah, it's actually and those architectures. Chic. It's actually yeah. chic to be that. That's like status in Twitter. If you <laughs> have a million followers and you don't follow anybody, you know, that's like. <laughs> but but definitely, you know, uh, you know, we've been talking about principles and and architecture and all these good code concepts, like you know, things like Solid. Learn that. Um, that works no matter what technology is under it. But the other thing is, uh, from a developer perspective, is the way I look at it is, if you can build the app with the intention that. It's, it's an airplane, and at some point we have to rip the engine out and keep the airplane flying and replace bits and pieces of it as we're still going, right? We can't just stop the, stop the line to be able to do an upgrade or, or change breaking APIs yeah. or whatever. We need to keep things going so that we stay in this internet speed world and, and, but introduce new, new features and new capabilities. Yeah, and the trick is to remember that we're not allowed to land the plane before we swap the engines out, right? <laughs> well, and then another, yeah, Bill brings up an interesting point is that, we're seeing websites being really applications, being APIs that we're talking to, and a lot of them are being REST-based, for better or worse, and we're still, as a community, trying to figure out good patterns for versioning these things, because we don't want things to come down when we need to swap to a new version. And so that's an area of active interest in research of how to version these web APIs and keep the whole system up and running, have old clients still be able to talk to the older versions, but have new enhanced versions coming along. Yeah, and, and architecture and design is, is going to help that. But if if you guys are are providers of information, providers of services, um, two suggestions. One is to to somehow come up with that versioning strategy or or whatever it is. Most APIs I've seen 
do version their APIs so that the old one keeps running and then you can start using the new one, right? So now you're empowering the developer to upgrade at their speed, not your speed. Um, the other thing is just making your APIs open. Like don't, you know, if you've got services to, uh, to offer, make them available. Don't lock things down unless, you know, you're dealing with subscriptions or, or whatever. But, you know, the, the development community is big enough that they will take on the challenge to promote your service or your application or extend your platform onto other devices that, you know, you probably don't have time to work on. A little more abstract, but speaking directly to the part of things that does not change is that as developers, two things that we absolutely need to do is keep learning and write code and not just the maintenance mode stuff, but like go in and play with some of that, the new stuff that's coming out because as RESTful services are starting to emerge and frameworks are developing over top of that to make it simpler to access them, to consume them, to propagate them, mm. we need to understand how that, that happens and we're not going to do that if we're still working on a VB6 project. In the spirit of learning, go outside the Microsoft space. <laughs> I know it's heretical, but, and to be honest, the reverse should be true too. If you're playing in PHP or Ruby, jump over, do something in C sharp, try different experiences. I'm finding it a fascinating place to play because there's things that the Ruby community does really well and that they do poorly. There's things that the .NET community does well and things that we do poorly. And to learn from these different communities and pool ideas and not reinvent the wheel, mm. you can be a huge player. Like yeah. I've gotten a lot of infamy for creating Saki, which is a PowerShell build engine, and I stole most of those ideas from Rake in the Ruby community. I'll yeah. freely admit that. And people love it, but I'm just like... I needed something like what the Ruby community had, but in the .NET space. And that's why I built a tool to scratch my own itch. You're like a missionary. Think of it then. <laughs> that, yeah. But, but just like <laughs> the aggregation of, of data and information that we've talked about, you know, you look at Windows Phone 7 where, you know, I can get information and contacts from Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter natively. We have to look at technology the same way. It's like, use the right tool for the right job. Now, I'm not saying go out and, and turn your enterprise into, you know, 8,000 different technologies. Um, you have to draw the line somewhere, but don't necessarily lock yourself into one technology. Further on to James's point, then you know, like um, in, in that idea of exploring other technologies. For if you're if you're an influencer inside your your group, whatever that looks like, if it's if it's on your team or if it's in your community, I think that's something that you need to be encouraging to do as well. To look outside of what you're currently developing on, look outside the platform that you're comfortable with, and when you step outside of that box, um, kind of shed some light on that to the people that are around you. Well, we're even seeing that with Microsoft. Like, we've seen PHP running on Azure now. Uh, I know Glenn Block is working on getting Node.js running on Azure. Uh, even Microsoft's cloud hosting platform is becoming multilingual and multi-platform. Mm. Uh, we're seeing things like Heroku being able to run. Heroku is a service built on top of EC2 that it makes it really easy to deploy a Ruby a Rails application. But you can now deploy Java apps. You can deploy, I think it's Django. And there's a wide variety of technologies that they're enabling on their platform. And so we're seeing this move both with hosting providers and with others, just explore what else is available out there. Yeah, I'm fascinated that Microsoft has uh, shut down Dryad and switched to Hadoop. That was very interesting. That's a big deal. Because I'm, 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 I actually thought Dryad was a heck of a good project. We did a show on it mm. ages ago. and uh, But Hadoop has got traction, is further ahead. And, uh, and if you haven't played with big data, it's a very interesting way to think about the problem. And, and there's very much being like... Uh, 
ASP.NET is now part of the Windows Azure team. And, mm -hmm. and in that team, there's very much now a feeling of we don't need to invent, reinvent things that are already doing really well. Right. Like we, Node.js is a great framework right now. So we are supporting it on Windows Azure. You know, we're, when there's good things out there, there's no reason we shouldn't be supporting them, especially mm -hmm. since, you know, with Node.js on Windows Azure, you're still paying us for Windows Azure. So. Sure. We're, <laughs> we're still making I mean, our money. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, seriously, that, that, you know, that's the, the, the economic decision that gets made there. Well, you, you see Azure running PHP, running WordPress, running, I mean, whatever you want, it, you can pretty much deploy to Azure now. I'd like to uh, ask the panelists to maybe talk about a really cool project that they did using web APIs or maybe a mashup or maybe for a client, you don't really need to divulge names, but just something that, that you really enjoyed, really got into lately. Or maybe not lately. <laughs> uh, I sp I've spent the last number of years developing enterprise applications, so it's all been internal data. Uh, and, and, so and nothing's cool. <laughs> so it's, it's not really something I've been necessarily developing myself, but I've been finding, uh, watching the stuff going on with SignalR, uh, yeah. with the real-time web stuff, and yeah. seeing some of the crazy projects coming out of that, uh, I spend... I have a tab open in my browser to jabbar.net, which is the little chat app. It was just a little sample chat app that yeah. David Fowler on the SignalR team wrote. And it's just really cool seeing how easy it is to build these kind of real-time apps. I'm, I'm actually using uh, SignalR on a project um, that I've, I've got started, uh, and I'm using it to, um, with, I've, I've, we've got a scenario where we're running into concurrency issues, and we don't necessarily need to fix it because, you know, on, on the back-end side of things, you have a number of things that you can do to protect your database to make sure that people aren't overwriting. But on the client side, if you've got three people trying to edit the same record, they don't know that each other's on it. So I'm using SignalR to solve that problem and actually highlight the fields that people are working on and to notify when another user enters that entity editing page or whatever. So nice. Yeah. Spooky, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and a little voyeurism mixed in with yeah. anti-concurrency. I'm, I'm looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you start to get to a point where you suddenly start to realize with these with long polling frameworks, WebSockets, SignalR, those kind of things, that suddenly it's not just a... A, my me talking to the server. It's all of us talking to the server, mm -hmm. and I like I we've got some stuff coming out about uh, single page applications, which is like pulling data down from the client, displaying it on there, and we've got some JavaScript around that. And I think it would be really cool to start tying in things like SignalR so that as changes happen, they just slide in mm -hmm. automatically. You know, I think the real time web is a big thing right yeah. now. Without having without having to do the work yourself anymore, the heavy lifting's already being done. Yeah, we're starting to get a good framework around this sense of a real-time web. Well, that's an interesting place that Web API is playing and providing a more usable REST infrastructure on the Microsoft platform is that if you start learning some REST, like real REST, not just pretty URLs, uh, it embraces the HTTP standard and you learn a lot about underlying network infrastructure and how you can optimize and solve some problems using technologies that have been deployed for... 15 yeah. years. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, cool app place. Um, just to sort of, uh, reflect on that point is, um, I wrote a, uh, police scanner app for Windows Phone 7. And it was kind of fun because it was a mashup of getting, uh, data from, uh, from a website, integrating the social aspects. So integrating with Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And then the actual broadcasts, the radio broadcasts, um, from police scanners uh, is available around the world, but it's coming from the from their radio towers. So it's this weird mashup of technology 
um, all brought to, brought to your phone. And and while I was building the app, the the I probably spent more time just sitting there listening to police broadcasts from from Chicago, New York, and whatnot. Uh, but they have so much more interesting crimes in Calgary. Yeah. But <laughs> but the interesting thing about it was that all the components were just simply like it was sort of. Uh, five minutes in NuGet installing a bunch of components, you know, 15 minutes consuming some data feeds. You know, it, it was put together very quickly, and it was just sort of the the whole Lego concept of I got a piece here, I need a data feed here, I need to stream some some audio here, um, and it, it and it's. To me, it's empowering in the sense that not just Windows Phone 7, but any kind of you know some of the HTML5 stuff is that we're getting to the point where it's. It's now more, you know, architecture and, and assembly than than coding, and just writing the little bits of glue that hook all the bits together. Well, yeah, and we're starting to see that on most modern development. Like we've got it now with NuGet in the .NET space. Um, Ruby's had it for a while with Ruby Gems and Bundler. Node.js has the Node Package Manager. We've got the, it makes it very easy to consume. Before it was like, okay, we have to go to a website, download some code, compile it, fit it into a lib. It was a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. And now it's literally just, oh, I need that piece. And it downloads and grabs the dependencies and it figures itself out. And Not yeah, we're really building with Lego now. Mm -hmm. One of the funnest, uh, one of the most fun, actually. Funnest is okay. If funnest is okay? Okay. Funly? Because f I didn't think fun was an adjective. I thought it was a noun. So one of the most fun projects that I've done, which was kind of simple, but it was great, was at the studio. You know, we have guests that record files sometimes offline wherever they are and they need to send us an mp3 file or a wave file or something like that so i wrote this little tool in silverlight an out of browser application in silverlight where you simply drop a file onto it and it and it asks you what your name is from that name on the server calling web services basic soap stuff calling web services it creates a directory under a, a, a server directory with your name on it and then uploads the file via web services. So how that works is I just had a, a web method, essentially, that took a, a class, which I had created, that had the file name. And it also had where I'm starting, you know, what chunk I'm sending. So it was just to send a chunk of a file. And so you do that asynchronously. And then that comes back, and you can update a progress bar. And when it's all done, so then you basically just sit there. And, and But the cool part is you can auto-resume. Like if something blows up, you come back. You turn and auto resume is on by default. It figures out how much of the file is there and it says, okay, start from here and it just continues up and it just works like a champ. And we've been using it uh, behind the scenes at Pwop now for a couple of years and that was just one of those really fun, cool things that wouldn't have been easy without SOAP and without the web service support in ASP.NET or in Silverlight. So that brought the conversation to screeching halt, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take us home, friend. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank the panel. James, Andy, Bill, and James. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, 
and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.